Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. Sitting next to Jeff Cannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us. First of all, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you will continue to join us by hitting the subscribe button both on YouTube and the podcast side of things that will notify you every time we post a new podcast or video five times a week, bringing you a ton of content. And we're doing our best to make it as best as it possibly can be. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about a topic that I know you get emailed a ton okay. about handicapping stocks. And you wrote a uh, what I thought was probably one of your better uh, focus cup high dailies. All right. um, and this was actually the one that I said that uh, when I can't think of a topic or I, or I can't think of a quote to pull from it, okay. because when I try to tweet out, I usually try to you know give a little, put a little... Make it enticing, you know, okay, like yeah. try to pull a quote. And this one, I really, uh, I had a hard time deciding which part I thought was the best part to use for the tweet. So I'm like, this is just pure gold. That's my quote. All right. Check out this, uh, this Focus Compounding Daily. And if you want to get this in your email box, when we do send them, uh, you could sign up for that at focuscompounding.com. And we were talking about handicapping a stock. And what stood out to me mm-hmm. was a couple things from this um, write-up. One you said most people think that their time horizon when they invest in a stock is three to five years from your experience. Of the people lot, we talked to, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot less than that. I think you said one to two years maybe. Okay. And I think that resonated with a lot of people. All right. And two, you were talking about you know, you, betting on horses relating that to investing mm-hmm. um, and you know how to think about where the returns will come from in the short term, the medium term. In the long term, and you were talking about business momentum mm-hmm. is a short holding period price, so maybe like a multiple re rating, mm-hmm. medium holding period, maybe on that what do you say, five year basis. Okay, uh, high quality business mm-hmm. is more of a long holding period, right? And how you could think different about that. And then you also talked about you know capital gains on taxes, and I think a lot of this came from we were in Nashville and we were talking right. with somebody who was saying. A lot of ideas he's invested in are sort of like the more magical formula type right. of investments mm-hmm. and how he will make like a quick 40 to 50% on the stock, sell out, and then the stock effectively goes back or below where he originally bought it. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of like, I don't know if my process is good. Did I get lucky? You know, and how right. do we really think about that? And because of Twitter, because of the markets, because of everything. I feel like a lot of investors judge themselves over even a month-to-month basis now. It's not even quarter-to-quarter anymore. Okay. It's month-to-month. That really is a sprint. Yeah. I'm, start, I'm starting to see a lot of investors um, talk a lot more about their returns on Twitter uh, this past quarter. I think it's because okay. the market you know, crashed. So it's really if they like oh, plunged I see. Yeah, in yeah. and mm-hmm. you know, they could be up 30% in the quarter mm-hmm. and still you know, be doing great on the year or whatever. But I'm... I don't know if that's a sentiment check or what, but that was one thing that I did notice. Uh, But let's talk about this, right? This idea of handicapping and, um, you know, what your thoughts are and how to sort of decipher between, you know, just buying low PEs where you maybe look to hold for three to five, get that multiple re-rating, but really judging the quality of the businesses for the long term. Right. So I don't think there's anything wrong with any of those approaches. Kind of like I was saying, I don't think there's any, you know, comparing to horse races. um, I don't think there's anything wrong with picking 
Um, I sort of talked about them like factors, you know. Um, so there might be a few different ways in which you could narrow the field of a horse race of eight to twelve horses down to those, you know, three or four that might have a realistic chance of winning, right? Same thing here. You could do that by saying, like, what are the best businesses? What are the lowest PEs? What are, you know, what has the most business momentum going forward? That kind of thing. And that gives you a list of stocks that might be, you know, might be able to win the race, right? Mm. But then the question I had is you have to be very careful about the distance that you think this race is really being run over. And what that has to do with is like picking the high quality business. So say you pick the really high quality. We talked about over-the-counter markets or something, right? Yeah. You pick over-the-counter markets. You think it's going to do great and whatever. For the long term, you, you do lots of research on that. And then you realize that you generally sell stocks in one, two, or three years. Well, then you didn't really pick the right stock for that length holding time. It may work out. It absolutely might because sometimes high-quality businesses get re-rated quickly. But that's not the best business to pick. Because if you if you know that you're going to sell no matter what, in the sense like you'll get bored and sell within three years. And for some people, that is an issue. Like they will switch out of things, even if it's working for them. Then what's going to happen is really the things with business momentum, um, definitely, and also cheap are the ones that would work the best. And I did say the stock price momentum, but I don't know how to evaluate that. That's not my kind of thing, but that also would work. So um, and that'd be ultra short term. So kind of if, if you think you're be- if you if it turns out you're not really a long-term stockholder and you are betting more for that sprint kind of thing, you're more of that trader that way, then the thing that would make the most sense are very cheap stocks which have something positive going on with the business. It's getting better in some way and to catch that moment that it that it shifts in that. And I don't know if that's more of a, whether you want to call that Peter Kundal type approach or if it's more of like a Peter Lynch type approach. But those are two of the things to think about that way. And then it would make sense to have the higher turnover. Yeah, you said that right here. You're like, so when making through your bets on stocks, you want a cheap stock where the business is getting better, even if it's just a very, very little bit better and never worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're kind of talking about like the re-ratings and stuff like that, right? That's right. where that return is going to come from. Yep. And that already there is progress in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Whereas if you are betting on the higher quality things, then you want to do that for the very long term. But you don't want to make the mistake of getting confused about that. Because as I said here, if you go up a little bit further, yeah. Um, it says like, and this is an illustration. So I gave an illustration of how much your annualized return would be. Um, from a $0.20 becoming a $1. So something increasing fivefold just from valuation change. So let's say something has a PE of 2 and it becomes 10, that kind of thing. Um, If that was true, then over short periods of time, like three years, you're going to beat everything because your return is going to be 70% just from that happening. So it doesn't really even matter what happens much with the business. It's just that it was so cheap. Uh, Even over five years, 38%. So we're talking nearly 40% returns from something um, quintupling just because of valuation. And there are things like that. I mean, we were looking at a stock, which is um, uh, on our trip, we're looking at a stock, which is probably less than 20 cents on the dollar in terms of book value and book value might even be understated. So it's possible it could be liquidated for something like that. Um, That's not out of the question. And what you realize is like, look, even if it took five to 10 years, right? Three to 10 years, let's use. If it happens in three years, that's a 70% a year added to your return. If it happens in 10 years, 17%. Even if it happens in 15 years, it's over 10% added to your return. Mm -hmm. So if the business is like just not getting 
not destroying value, buying something that's so cheap that it should increase five times works even over 15 years, but it doesn't over 30 because you only get a 6% return from that. And it's generally a really cheap value stock, right? Is going to have more than a 6% um, return in terms of the business deficit versus a very high quality one. So if you look on the short point of that, if you're tend to be someone who sells in three years, it does make a lot more sense to focus on things that are very cheap and have momentum going in the right direction. And But if you're a really long-term investor, then maybe just buying the highest quality business when it hits a momentary bump is the way to do it. And that is what Buffett does. You know, He holds for 30 years and he does it at a moment where a really great stock gets momentarily cheap or something. You know, mm-hmm. Let's talk about over 10 years, right? Okay. So what are, what are the characteristics of the type of companies? Because that is you're judging much more the business quality, the durability mm-hmm. of the company. I mean, what would you be looking for for uh, the type of company to hold for more than 10 years just value creation so the amount of the amount of the return on capital and how much they're retaining and in general i don't think it's that important that the return on capital be incredibly high all it has to be as long as it's retaining almost all of it so even if you had a business where um you know your return on capital might only be 15 percent, like your return on equity might be like 15 percent a year or something if that was the case, but you're retaining 100% of your earnings, then that's actually a lot of value creation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're talking about the, these three-year plays where you're really mm-hmm. going for the mar- multiple re-rating, is that a position that you would put a third of your portfolio in or 20% of your portfolio in? Or is that more of a, I guess, a more of a diversified approach would be better for that? Um. I, I don't know. It, it it depends on the person doing it. Um, I th- think that it would make sense to be more diversified. We've talked about this before, simply for the purpose, uh, not because of greater danger or something. I wouldn't suggest investing in riskier things um, because there's plenty of value stocks that are just boring. They're not that they're risky. Um, I think, though, that the problem that most people have is asset plays and things like that, very cheap things, they tend to sell out of without giving them enough time for that. So like when we mentioned something like Mavada looking cheap or something, see, if you're not, if you think that um, Apple's an amazing business or something, you might stick with Apple. But if you think Mavado's a so-so business, but it's incredibly cheap, then you might get bored of it and sell it too fast when the stock doesn't move. So though, if you tend to own like 10 of those at once, then you kind of don't look at everyone to clear out your portfolio in it. And you just, there'll be something happening with one or two of them every year that they'll be going up a hundred percent or something, you know? So I have always thought that's kind of easier for people. I found that to be true with net nets. There's not really a great, like we've talked about this where you're like, so do a lot of net nets not work out? Not really. They have an incredibly high hit rate. It's not like there's a few home runs and stuff. Um, they have really high hit rate, but I don't know people who hold a portfolio of a few net nets and stick with them for long. Mm-hmm. But if they hold 20 net nets, they're willing to think of it overall as a portfolio and just ignore them till they've given them a couple of years to work out and then they sell them if they don't or something. So they no longer like keep obsessing about, should I clear this out of my portfolio? Nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this part. You were saying some people figure you should just bet on compounders. Uh, but you're saying if you're betting on private businesses, you you are going to hold forever. I'd agree. But then you said, but the actual holding period for most investors I talk with is about one to three years. Mm -hmm. They usually think it's about three to five years, but then they check their actual brokerage statements and find that they rarely own stocks for more than three years. And I think that's very interesting because I was actually talking to someone recently who was telling me, so the way his portfolio is structured, 
is Amazon makes up a very large part of his portfolio, mm -hmm. like 33 to 35%. And the rest of it is spread out over 24 positions. Okay. So they're much smaller positions. And he was saying that he's, he shuffles the deck around a lot, a lot more than he would like. And I think it's because he's just, the, the risk is too spread around. So it's like in his head, probably either consciously or subconsciously, if you're going to flip a 2% or a 3% position, you're probably like, well, it just doesn't matter as much because it's so small, the portfolio, right? But it actually mm -hmm. adds up because he's running into, um, you know, the capital gains and taxes being an issue because it's been such a drag on his performance over okay. the past two or three years. Yeah. And I see that it happens with people a lot. Um, there are some people who don't mind that they buy a little bit and then they like just keep it even though it's a small percentage. But for a lot of people, it, it, they develop brain to the problem that you're talking about. I think the toughest thing I've said this before is like, it's the combination of the position size and the turnover. So if you have a tendency to have high turnover, if you also have small position size, that's very taxing on you in terms of how much you can actually care about the position. And it becomes a thing where you think everything's just like a small decision because you figure I won't really be in this for all that long. You know, I can reverse myself pretty quickly. And it's only a 2% position or something where there are some people who will buy a 2% position and like they're the kind of people who never sell or something, mm -hmm. you know? And my advice to him was literally if I were managing as an individual investor, my mm -hmm. own money, and I've told you this too, I would literally just do the coffee can approach. I would just buy it. So let's say you have whatever that pile of money is, you invest mm -hmm. it as if like your holding company, you save money, and then you reinvest into another company, but you just literally never sell and you never check anything. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, but I don't know if it works for everyone. And if it doesn't work for you, a good way to do it is to divide it up and be realistic. So divide up. The, the problem that I see mainly is people think betting on quality and stuff, but over too short a period of time, mm -hmm. for instance, mm -hmm. or, or betting on value or whatever, but thinking that value is going to win over a whole infinite holding period or something. That's much less common. Um, so like you have to divide it up into the buckets of what you're betting on and be realistic about it. So if you're doing compounders, so like for instance, the Amazon portion of portfolio, if he's kept that for a very long time, then he does have a compounder portion of the portfolio that he's realistic about. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, it's the other part of the portfolio that is the one that you have to analyze and be like, wait, how long do I actually hold these? Or am I flipping them faster than I think? Mm -hmm. And if you're flipping them fast enough that you're like getting short-term gains and losses and stuff, then you're probably f worrying about factors that aren't the biggest factors in that time. Like at that point you might as well um, be focused on the price movements in the stocks without looking at the business. Because I can't predict how a stock is going to react based on how its business does over a period of a few months. We can't do that. Even if we had an idea of how well a business would do over the next three or six months, the stock re-rating is so much a bigger factor than the, how the market in, reacts in to the it. short term. Yeah, yeah. How the market, like knowing, I, I know people worry about like what this quarter's earnings will be. If we could figure out what this quarter's, I mean, in some cases we have some ideas about like, I could guess there's, there's some stocks that we know well enough that I have pretty strong ideas about what I think the earnings will be. I don't necessarily have very strong ideas about how the market will react to those earnings mm -hmm. though. And that's what actually matters if you want to be out in three months or something, sure. you know? Yeah. So not only would you have to be right on, you know, the fundamentals, but also the perception of those fundamentals by the market. Right. We talk about that all the time, the Keynesian beauty contest aspect of it. Right. So what does that mean? 
Um, we could predict for some companies that their earnings would be terrible because of COVID, but will we predict that that means they would stay flat as a stock? Would they they be less terrible? Yeah. Would they pop up a lot before then? Things like that. Well, then a lot of people would say, well, a reverse DCF or see what the market's currently pricing in. Sure. Yeah. Could be approached to doing that. Yeah. And that, and that is the the, um, handicapping aspect of it, which is that you have to compare that to what you're thinking versus what the market is. And and that's the way to do it. I mean, like take computer services, which we talked about. That's why we bought computer services because we figured that like from the quality perspective of the business, it was very, very high. That's kind of the best way to give this example is comparing it to horse racing. So people kind of wonder why would you buy a stock that had a normal PE? Well, we obviously thought we were buying a stock with a normal PE that was the fastest horse in the race. You know, we, we were thinking that all the horses in the race were, you know, six to one odds or something. And one of them was a lot faster than all the others. Um, that's fine to do. It, it's just that maybe sometimes people overlook those. Okay. And, and Buffett buys a lot of times things like that. It's just a matter of how mispriced it is. You don't have to find the very best compounder in the world because the very best compounder could trade at 90 times earnings. But if you find one that's at 15, it's the one that looks out of place. Computer services to me looked very, very out of place and that was priced in line with much more mediocre stocks. It was the only one of its, like it, it really stood out as having very average price multiples for a very not average business mm-hmm. over a long period of time. Um, it's harder. I always think to do the math on like a terrible business. That's incredibly cheap. I think that's a hard one to price and a great business is incredibly expensive and using the horse race example, right? If it probably is true that I've been in horse races where there's a 90 to one shot, that's a good bet, but it's really hard to figure out because I and everyone else feels this is a very, very unlikely to win um, horse. So, but your question is just, just quite how unlikely, how bad is this horse versus um, the odds here? Same thing with the favorite. I think when you're getting down to it pays, you know, three to five or something, um, it's very hard to evaluate just how big a favorite that is. So when we talk about some stocks that people like, I often like the business too, but um, the price is so high that it can become difficult. Like we did something where we talked about monster and things like that. That can be a little difficult because it's not cheap. So I'm not disagreeing about the business, but it's just harder to do that. Whereas we tried to do the comparison where like, okay, well, what about Celsius versus monster versus Coke? And you start lining them up and saying, okay, do I think that one of these is priced way out of line with what its true odds are? Mm-hmm. And the best situation is mm-hmm. when you get all three of these at once, right? You get business momentum, of a high quality company that's currently trading at a low price. Yes, that is the best. And in my experience, that happens only through tremendous neglect. That does not happen because people hate the stock. You never get all three of those happening at the same time. Um, People rarely hate a stock where the business momentum is going up in a big way. Mm -hmm. Um, But it does happen with stocks that get totally overlooked for a long period of time. Yeah, and you've said to me a couple of times, you're like, well, there could come a time where this company, you know, does really great and the market doesn't even notice it. And if you're pretty much saying, if you want to see something, anything that's annoying, it's, it's going to be that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say, you know, as an example, like, um, when I was talking about, uh, here's a really good boring example, 20 years ago or so buying J and J snack foods, business momentum was doing fine had a low price versus the market, relative to the market, had an incredibly low price and was high quality. A food company it had already had a decade and something of like every 
year and most quarter every quarter sales and earnings were up a little bit and stuff it just had that those things you're talking about there not a huge shift in business momentum but consistently positive business momentum things were always getting a little bit better at that point um and yet it was just very very overlooked but that was a weird time like everyone was into the internet things and stuff like that and here was a very boring company that may happen again now you know i mean we've talked about it though we're i think we did a podcast on it recently right so there's some situations where buffett would buy up a company for three to four years or even mm-hmm. five years and the stock would go nowhere but then it would you know go up three to four times within a couple of years mm-hmm. when we sit about it sit and talk about it on this podcast of in say three four five years we're like oh that's just yeah who wouldn't wait like that long but that's very hard to do especially when the markets are going up and everything like that you know yeah and and it's a he knows how long he's betting on them um even when his partnership years honestly his period for investing in many ways was a bit longer than investors I talked to today. So even when he was considered a Ben Graham type that would flip these stocks quickly and stuff, we're actually talking about someone who was holding them for longer, was willing to hold them for longer. I have to be careful about that. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with you um, selling out after your stock's gone up 100% and you thought it should only ever have gone up 50%, you know, Mm -hmm. um, for things happening faster than you expected. But how long would you really stick to it? A lot of people will sell out faster if nothing happens. I'm kind of saying, well, what's your tolerance for like um, boredom or how's your impatience or whatever? If nothing happens for three years, I mean, if your bet is just that it's a great compounder, but you don't know if it's super cheap and stuff, Three years probably isn't long enough. There are periods of three years that are really not great stock performances for amazing companies. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on today's podcast. If you want to get on the email list, you could go to focuscompounding.com to get the Focus Compounding dailies, which we just went over in your email box. I also do tweet them out at Focus Compound. Um, uh, this was a really great write-up. So if you want to get access to this and it hasn't been sent to you, uh, go to my Twitter and you will see it there. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today. Make sure you hit the subscribe buttons both on YouTube and the podcast. Jeff, tell them, say good night. Good have night. A, have a great night, everybody. All right. Yeah, have a great nice night. Podcast. Take care. Bye. <laughs>